Welcome to a new episode of the International and Cross-Cultural Business Podcast. This is the place for you to become the global leader ready to lead in a global economy. And in today's episode, I talk to Kimberly Van Tol. Kimberly lives in Canada and lives a vibrant and, I could say, diverse life. She teaches at two Canadian universities in the Special Needs Education Program, and she runs two businesses, her own translating company, Language Arts, and she offers educational consulting to companies and individuals mostly focused on online education. Kimberly works with national and international companies and ministries. And with the translating business language arts, Kimberly focused on the message behind the actual words rather than translating the exact wording. Working with only native speakers avoids that the message in company's content gets lost and that what you as a business want to express, that that remains the same in another language. I think it's good to know that normally I take a week in between the recording and publishing the episode because this helps me to reflect on the interview and to deliver the quality that you deserve. However, today's episode with Kimberly, Kimberly and I dive into the importance of inclusive language and inclusive communication. And especially when you do business internationally, inclusive means really inclusive. Do you use language that everyone across the globe relates to? And do you stay away from cultural references that, for example, make sense to you in Sweden or the Netherlands, but for someone living in South Africa, doesn't have a clue? For this specific episode, I didn't take a week to edit. I took 15 hours for editing and publishing because not long after the talk I had with Kimberly, I got confronted and I'm using the word confronted because that's basically how it felt. I got confronted with a press release from a multinational cooperation and that multinational cooperation, they announced that an upcoming campaign uh, without going into the details of the specific example, because I don't think those are really relevant, but I realized that this company used the definition spring 23 season as a reference for their campaign launch. You know, this is a European company. It's a multinational, but it's European from origin. And so am I. I'm European from origin as well. I have lived and worked in Europe for more than half of my life. And I know that in this specific context, I can expect the campaign for this organization to be launched, let's say not before April, but before July. Here I found myself based in Lima in Peru in the Southern Hemisphere. And I was thinking spring 23 for me will be September, October this year. So what does that mean then? That should I expect this campaign for this multinational not to be launched in the Southern Hemisphere? And I started thinking of the countries that they have presence in that are based on the equator. 
when you operate internationally, but especially when you operate globally, you want to use a language that speaks to all. You want to stay away from using terms, references, and indicators that mean one thing to one, but something else to another. And seeing this press release, it got so clear to me that we have a long way to go when it comes to using culturally inclusive language. Multinationals with global presence, startups or scale-ups, we are all responsible of using terms and references that mean the same across the globe. So I decided not to take a week, but to publish the episode with Kimberly ASAP so that we can all benefit from her tips and recommendations. I hope you will find it valuable. I really enjoyed the talk with Kimberly. Let me know what you thought and enjoy the episode. Good morning for you, Kimberly. Good Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon for me. It's 10 minutes past 12, so... uh... Good afternoon for me. (laughs) I want to wish you a super, super warm welcome. I'm really, really excited for our conversation today. In 2012, you packed your bags for a solo travel to Canada, which is where you met your Canadian husband. And you call it a life changer because two years later, in 2013, you moved to Canada to establish your life there. And from my perspective, your life is quite established. You teach at two Canadian universities, you run your own translating business, and you offer educational consultancy to companies and individuals that want to improve their online education. Mm -hmm. This, but more, uh, in your life in Canada from your house or from your 40-year-old camper van. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. Um, And it's so funny because we just chatted a little bit in Dutch and now we're we're easily transferring to English, which I think is so funny. But yeah, that's right. So I I moved here almost 10 years ago uh, this summer. Uh, It's uh, February as we're reporting this podcast. And uh, yeah, I can't believe where the time went. But yeah, it's it's established now, I would say, you know, it's always when you move to a new country, um, I always say you have to put in the work, you know, people don't come knocking on your door saying, hey, do you want to work for me? Do you want to be my friend? Um, you have to do the work, you have to put yourself out there. Uh, but then once you do, it's, yeah, it's a great experience. But I know I don't have to tell you, you know that as well. I do know that, but it's uh, it's not always a walk in the park. Uh, this no. is also the the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but how yes. did your life look like before moving to Canada? Um, well, I mean, I had a great life. I, I didn't leave because I was unhappy or because I was escaping anything. I just felt a lot of my friends had traveled by themselves, mostly to Australia or New Zealand. And I was just so mesmerized by their stories. And I thought it was so exciting. And for me, I had already finished university and worked at my current workplace back then for about, I don't know, like two years or something. I graduated in 2010. 
And so it was 2012 then. And I just thought, you know what, if I don't do it now, I may not never do it, but I don't want to go to Australia or New Zealand. I don't know why. Um, nothing to do with Australia or New Zealand, because I think they would be awesome to go to one day. But I just always felt attracted to Canada because of the, you know, the, the nature pictures that you see everywhere and just what I heard about it. And I don't know, it was just a really deep feeling that I'm like, I want to go there. But I had no idea whether there would be hostels or like this backpacking culture. Would that even exist over there? I had no idea. So I did some research. And of course, it does. Not to the extent that it does, I think, in Asia and and uh, Australia and stuff, but it does exist. And so I booked my ticket for six weeks and then I booked an accommodation for the first three nights and the rest I left open. Uh, and I, and if you had known me back then, you would have thought, wow, that's quite something because I was really someone that liked control, that liked, you know, to know what, how, when, who, where, uh, etc. But I did, and I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made is just to, to take that leap and and go for it and it 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 works miracles for your your self-confidence and your your trust in the world and yeah so it was a great experience and then you returned to the netherlands after how many after how many months or weeks uh, it was six weeks and then in the last week was when I met my now husband who is Canadian and so I mean I never planned to move to Canada I loved it from day one I mean I fell in love with the country right away um, but yeah that definitely changed things it was supposed to be a, a one-time six-week trip but <laughs> that changed quite a bit. I, yeah I mean if you if you fall in love with a local then I would say your future might look different and so it did for you it did for me yeah absolutely and then in 2013 you you took a loop of leap of faith yeah i did i um i quit my job and i thought you know what i'm just going to try and in Canada, I don't know if you know this, but it's not easy to move here. Like there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of uh, bureaucracy. It's quite hard to get a visa to come here. Um, but I was still young. Well, I'm still not old, but I mean, I was still in the category when you could get a, a working holiday visa and or a young professional visa, which are one year work visas. Uh, so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to apply for one and just see how it goes. And so uh, I came here and we found an apartment together because that's the other thing, right? Like we'd seen each other maybe for a total of 10 weeks or something, but I wasn't going to move here and live on my own. Like it just, so yeah, anyways, um, we're still getting along 10 years later. So, <laughs> but um, I think, so we, we found an apartment and I started looking for a job and I was really lucky in the sense that my, my um, diplomas and my education translated directly uh, to here. So my master's degree in education was recognized here as well, um, which was really helpful because that meant that I, I could continue my career uh, as I had left it sort of in the Netherlands. And so um, that's what I did. And yeah, it was just, and that was a great way too. I found that's where I met most people. Still my friends to this day are all, I all met through work. So I would definitely recommend if anyone's listening to this podcast that is considering a move is to, even if you have your own company, still do something, whether it's volunteer work or actual work, because that's really a great way to meet people. 
Did, would you say that it made you feel part of a local community? Yeah, it definitely did. And I think I always say, you know, my English was quite good when I came to Canada, but I probably learned 60% here. Um, my husband doesn't agree with that. He thinks it's way less. He's like, your English was way better than you give yourself credit for. But I think when it comes to speaking, like you said, to local people, to hear the slang they use, you know, the sayings they use, the jokes they make, the accent they have and all of that. Um, yeah, I learned so, so much. And I uh, was invited to birthday parties and Christmas dinners and um, walks and outings. And like, it just, it really helps you to integrate into the community and into uh, the country that you're in. I, I can definitely relate to that. Yes, definitely. And you also said moving abroad definitely, you know, brings a lot of changes to your life. One thing that remained relatively the same was, or you had the opportunity to persuade your career that you left in the Netherlands in Canada. Yeah. Tell, tell us more about that. How, where did you kick started off? Yeah, so when I worked, when I uh, graduated in the Netherlands, I studied um, educational and child studies. So that would be known as Onderwijskunde in Dutch. And I graduated in 2010. And it was so funny because I think I was, how old was I? 22 or 23 or something. Um, and I started consulting right away. Like I started working for a consulting agency, educational consulting agency. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm speaking to these people that have been in front of a classroom for 20 plus years. And here I come saying, hey, I know what you should be doing. So to me, that didn't feel right at all. So I felt like, you know what? I just need to go to the classroom first. I need to establish that foundation for myself. And then I know what I'm talking about. And then I might be able to do other work uh, in the future. And so that's what I did. And so I worked at a school for three years for um, children that were chronically ill. And so they would um, be in our school that was close to the hospital. So the children were, were not always in the hospital, but were not always able to be in school. So they sort of went back and forth. And I was a teacher there for three years and I just loved it. And I learned so much about, you know, children with disabilities, how our educational system uh, is designed and how that often does not work well for these individuals and, uh, and so on. And so when I came to Canada, I actually found a job pretty similar with the same age group, a little bit older. Uh, so children between like four and seven, where I was basically going into schools and daycare centers to advise how to work with students with disabilities. So I would advise teachers and daycare staff on, you know, you have this child in your classroom, uh, there's obviously behaviors present or other um, physical or, or psychological disabilities. What can I what kind of advice can I give you to promote inclusion for this child, as well as make sure that, you know, they don't interfere with how you teach your classroom and all of that. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then there was a couple of jobs in between, but then I moved basically to older students, older and older and older, until about five years ago, I uh, started working at university. 
where I was uh, an accessibility advisor. So that basically meant that students with disabilities that uh, were planning to attend university would come and speak with me and I would make sure that their, their education was fully accessible to them. So let's say if they were uh, blind, then I would make sure that they had their books in braille or that they would have uh, whatever materials they needed or whatever software they needed and that all their professors were aware and all of that. And if they were deaf, we would make sure there were interpreters there. Um, if they had, uh, you know, learning disabilities, we would make sure that we would talk about that and see what we could do there. And that was great. But I did find that during that time, I was also a counselor for a lot of the time. And that's the part where I was not educated to be a counselor. And so to hear everyone's life stories was a lot for me. And of course, I understand that if you have a disability, it does significantly impact your life, but that doesn't make me a counselor. So that was the part where I was that, that I was struggling with. But that was also when I started to feel ready to say, you know what, I think I have this foundation now because that was, um, yeah, like five or six years later, where I really worked in the field of education in the classroom and all of that. And so I thought, you know what, I'm ready to start teaching about this. And so now I teach at two universities where I teach about so I'm teaching new teachers <laughs> on um, how to teach children and students with disabilities, uh, mostly. So I teach courses on things like, you know, autism, learning disabilities, mental health, um, but also educational design um, and things like that. So that's kind of the the educational career path. And then in the meantime, what happened was because I was seeing so many barriers that existed in the current educational system that I started writing about that. And I discovered the framework of universal design for learning. And I won't go into that too deep today, but that basically means that you design education in the way that it's accessible, motivating, interesting for anyone, whether they have disabilities or not. And so I um, started sharing a lot about that on social media and things like that. And I received a lot of response. And that's where people asked me for consultations where they said, you know what, we have this training in our company. Could you take a look to see if it meets those guidelines? Or I'm thinking of creating an online course. Can you help me to determine if it is, if I'm going in the right direction, these kinds of things. And so that's how my one company was born, <laughs> my educational consulting company. And then if we rewind a few more years, um, I started blogging about my life in Canada and stuff like that, where I also received a lot of responses to my writing. And people started to ask me to write and later translate. And so that's how my translation company was born that grew actually really fast and I used to do all the work myself well together with my husband because he is native English. So it really helps that he can read over my translations uh, and now the translations of a small team of freelancers that we work with to make sure that they really are proper English, that they have those right nuances, you know, and they're not just, you can't tell that they're actually translated. That's what we're going for. So yeah, that sort of uh, brought me to where I am today. <laughs> I I'm I love hearing this and uh, like I said in your introduction you have a very diverse and very vibrant life established in Canada and I think this is just the tip of the iceberg really 
And um, it's impressive to hear how basically two of your businesses, based on your talents and things that came quite natural to you, you know, showed a demand in the market. Yeah. And that's that's why I decided to pursue that, because I think I wouldn't have started out if I thought, you know what, I have an idea. Let's just try it. That's not really. Uh, and of course, that can sometimes work, too. But I really felt like I was feeling a, a need there. And um, and I like that variety, you know, to do different things. And um, and like I said before, I love my my teaching at the at the universities because that brings me in contact with colleagues I'm part of a team that part and then my other companies are where I really can be creative and and be an entrepreneur which I also really love and all of that so I like that combination I, I can tell by your facial expression that it's it's giving you energy you can really yes. you can really see that definitely I want to go back to you with you uh, to your first job in Canada, where you basically from the traditional education system in the Netherlands moved into the traditional education system in Canada. And in my field, the culture that we carry uh, as human beings, and that is, let's say, wired in our brain, is very strongly influenced by local education. And how, I'm curious to hear how you experienced that. Like, was it the same for you? You know, would you compare then the Dutch educational system with a Canadian? How have you experienced that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think for me, so many things that were so common and normal and not even thought about by Canadian colleagues were new to me uh, to begin with just the structure like for example in in Holland we talk about uh, group one group two group three group four until eight and that's when you go to high school here it's kindergarten grade one grade two grade four and then you have junior high and then you have high school I didn't know what that was so when people that worked, most of my colleagues had gone through that system themselves to get to where they were. So that was a big difference. Um, I also, the first few years I worked at a Catholic school. So that was quite different because in, in Holland, I worked at a, a non-specifically religious school. So for me to be able to, you know, attend like, um, church services and to read from the bible every day and and the songs and everything that was different i was familiar with it because i was raised catholic so you know it wasn't i, I went to church several times we weren't super actively catholic but i mean i i was familiar with most of the the elements there um but also other little things an example that came to mind was at that time my husband and i weren't married yet and so I always thought, you know, the term boyfriend referred to a 12-year-old boy that you had kissed, you know, behind a bush one time or something. <laughs> so I thought I would call him my partner, right? And so I found out later that here, often when you refer to a partner, that means that you're in a relationship with someone of the same sex. So they had assumed that I had a girlfriend, which... Oh, you're kidding. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't know this. No, I didn't know that either. So later I learned that that was really um, 
that's changing a lot right now but back then and so I said no but he's not my husband but he's not my boyfriend because he's not 12 and they're like no you can say boyfriend like he's you know he he would be considered your boyfriend and even now to this day like people that are starting a new relationship and they're in their 50s and they call their partner a boyfriend like I, I just find that really strange but anyways that was one of those examples where I remember blushing like I was like oh I had no idea and they my colleagues were really interested because they were like that's so interesting that you point that out because we never even thought about this and so yeah there's definitely differences there's also a lot of commonalities in the fact that you know both the Netherlands and Canada are very strongly focused on inclusion and they're very strongly focused on um, new ways of learning. So rather than just overloading children with new information, they're going more and more towards a kind of discovery-based model where the children can just um, discover, you know, use all their senses and learn that way rather than sitting behind uh, a little table all day, every day. So that was, that was th those were things that were common. Um, other things were, you know, like here you go everywhere by car, People don't walk or drive or, or ride their bikes anywhere. Uh, that was new for me. So I had to drive everywhere now, which was which was very new. And you had to get a parking permit because everyone needs a parking space and there's not as many. So as a staff member, you have to get a parking permit. Like it's just things like that that were. Yeah, I haven't thought about this in a long time. But yeah, that's an interesting question. There's definitely differences, but also commonalities as well which most probably helped you also in the transition to establish yourself within that career, I, I assume. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I think the boyfriend example is such an interesting example when it comes to translating versus translating within the context, something mm -hmm. that you uh, you're exposed to on a daily basis with your uh, with language arts, really. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Language Arts is our translation company. And I think that is where um, what I really value in my clients is that they recognize that they don't know certain things, you know, or that they might get certain things wrong. And so I have several clients that will even run the smallest sentence by me to say, you know what, I'm not sure about this. Can you take a look? Can you make sure that I'm on the right track? And then there's a difference between Britain and the US and Canada, for example, um, all of Europe, like it, it's, there's differences within the English language as well. We translate English to Dutch and Dutch to English. Um, but I think it really says a lot about someone or about a company or organization that recognizes the importance of properly translating because so many times I see things translated and I can immediately tell that they have been translated because they just don't sound like they should, in my opinion. <laughs> and it just really takes away from what you're trying to say. Like I, I sometimes know that person and I know they're amazing and what they offer is fantastic. But if I was reading on their website, I'd be like, mm, I don't know, because it doesn't come across the way it should. And that's really, uh, I think an opportunity that, um, that companies can take to really put themselves out there and to show that they're the expert in their field. And who is it that, um, that you serve with language arts? Is it companies or individuals? Um, it's mostly companies, I would say. 
Um, so we have quite a few international companies that we work with, and that goes from, you know, supply chain management to toy, uh, toys for children, to tourism, to like, there's lots of variety, but it's, yeah, it's mostly companies that either want to establish a pres presence in the Netherlands and need Dutch translations. So for example, we work for uh, a company now that, um, it's actually really cool because they are in that early learning field, which is also, of course, my area of expertise. So I love that part. Um, and they want to sort of uh, become established in Europe. And so they've asked us for the Dutch translations. But we also have Dutch companies that are now looking to expand into Europe, where we provide the English translations. And so um, we we do mostly do creative translating. Like I, in the beginning, I used to take on everything. I'm more selective now just because everyone has their strengths and but it's also much more enjoyable for me to do projects that I actually care about and um, and I find I always learn something new because I don't know much about tourism I don't know much about supply chain management so working through that with clients is really really exciting and at first I thought is that a problem that I don't know much but I find it makes me objective which makes that I can uh, really objectively read it as though I was first visiting their website and does it then make sense to me not being from your field and so that also has an advantage there so we we mostly work with companies we do occasionally help individuals as well like for example coaches or people that want to expand um, their services mostly from the Netherlands into Europe for example but um, yeah it's mostly international companies that we work with. I couldn't agree more with you that it's so, it says a lot about companies that they, you know, they don't know what they cannot know, really. This and mm -hmm. and to run uh, your marketing messages or whatever it is by, uh, by you or the team really helps and really, yeah, yeah, really helps to, to get your company message across. Yeah. Well, and even it's it's me, but then it's also my husband who's a really good writer. And he'll sometimes point things out where he's like, what? What is that? You know, or when I may not even have noticed. So the combination, I think, is really good because I can still in my mind translate, but he can't. He has no idea what was there before. And so if something doesn't make sense to him, it doesn't make sense to him because he can't read Dutch. So, you know, it's it's really interesting to um, to have that extra sort of set of eyes on on the work as well. Um, yeah, so that that works well. Yeah. So your objective, because of the fact that you work with companies and you're not operating within their industry and he's objective in terms of language. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Very, yeah, you really uh, complement each other. That that yeah. uh, that is super super clear. What would you say is the difference between just simple translations that we run through Google Translate, as an example, or proper translations within cultural context or within an industry context? I think it's. Um... Google Translate, I mean, it has come a long way. And especially now with all the artificial intelligence out there, I think it's going to go even further. Um, but I think the difference is what Google Translate does is it translates word for word. And so um, 
it'll keep the sentence in the same structure as you put it in there initially. It will just translate the words. And to give you a funny example, when um, when my husband and I were still apart, like I was still living in the Netherlands and he was living here and we were emailing back and forth. And just to be cute, he put a paragraph in there um, in Dutch for me, just, you know, he, he used Google Translate as well. And so what he wanted to say was that he saw a pack of wolves, so a group of wolves. And so he translated that into to Dutch and it turned out, the sentence turned out to be a backpack of wolves which of course is a completely different thing. So if you would use that, you would completely miss the mark uh, if this was a professional thing. Now, of course, I was laughing really hard because I knew exactly what he was trying to say, but that gives you an idea of how wrong you can really go when you use those kinds of tools. The other thing is we don't necessarily translate word for word or not at all, really. What we do is we translate the message that people are trying to convey and if there are cultural references in there, if there are, uh, for example, with that um, American company now with the toys for, for babies and children, um, they use a lot of um, songs, uh, things like that in their, in their materials, which of course are not the same here. And so we would then choose Dutch songs that are uh, comparable in many ways because they are about the same concepts, they have the same kind of rhyming structure, that kind of thing. Um, because the English songs wouldn't mean anything here. So those are, are things that, you know, Google Translate can't do. Um, and it's also what may be convincing in one language may completely, again, miss the mark in another language. So uh, to have a person uh, interpret it and put it into words so that it makes the exact same sense in the goal language, that's... I think what you want when you want something translated and we, you know, things like legal documents or manuals, for example, for products or for, for devices, we don't do that stuff. First of all, because I don't like it. <laughs> I find it way too boring, <laughs> but second of all, because I find that, um, that's another expertise. So I have two people, two freelancers that I work with that are excellent at that and they love it. So I ask them to do it. And uh, so I think we all have our own strengths. And for us, it's mostly that creative piece where we really do um, yeah, add that meaning to it. And I really feel, and please correct me when I'm wrong, but I really feel that if I'm, let's say, the CEO of an organization and I want my Dutch uh, materials translated to English, that you secure that my authentic message, that what I stand for, that what I want to uh, spread with the world, that that remains rather yes. than just being translated to a language that is a common or in this case, English. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing is, like I said before, when when, uh, you know, in some languages, it's very common to work with exclamation marks a lot, for example, or um, to highlight certain things or to, for example, Dutch is really direct. In English, like, for example, you would get uh, at the end of a document, got questions is what I've seen several times. So I'm like, no, you don't you don't say that like that here. It just, it's way too direct. People don't like to be talked to like that, especially in Canada. People are really polite. So if you say to them, got questions, they're like, oh, sorry. I mean, you know, I hope it's okay to ask questions. So it's just, um, 
yeah, I think the message is what matters. The words, of course, we take those into consideration, but what we really, and sometimes you can't get that from just the text. Sometimes it takes a conversation to say, you know what, why did you choose that? Uh, what's behind it? Because then we can take that with us when we translate, um, because we're not going to use that sentence because that's way too direct, but we want to make sure that it does still convey your message. So how could we rephrase that in a way that's still you, but reads better in, in the other language? I love that you bring in the directness of the Dutch language. I think globally, the Dutch are known to be direct as well. They're very comfortable with, for example, receiving negative direct feedback, you know, providing and receiving really uh, something that um, is different across the globe and in Canada indeed as well. And how, for example, in the Netherlands, in the educational system, um, we've been taught that the teacher is more of a facilitator among others, especially in non-religious schools, in, um, in let's say, uh, in, in primary school mainly. And the teacher facilita facilitates the discussion. The teacher, if you have a question, you raise your hand. But also if you disagree, you're invited to speak up. Something that I feel in Canada is different. Yeah, I would say it 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 gets to be like this more and more often as well. Uh, but when I teach, I find it so funny because, of course, you know, I I t I talk a lot about universal design for learning. So I feel like if I talk about that a lot, I should practice what I preach, right? So I mean, I can't say to others, do it this way and then do it differently myself. But to see the reaction from students when they say to me, uh, "Oh, this course doesn't have an exam." And I say, no, it doesn't have an exam. So we can write a paper or record a podcast or do a presentation. We can choose. And I say, yeah. And and they're just like, and um, it's still very common to write assignments for the instructor. So they're asking me, do you want this? Do you want this font? Do you want this, uh, you know, amount of space between the lines? Do you want this many pages? And I'm like, you know what? What I want is for you to demonstrate what you've learned in the course uh, in a way that's meaningful for you. And I'm just here to give you feedback, but I'm not here to. So and, and to them, that's such a huge change in how because they've always seen this this professor as the authority figure that they have to please and not make angry and um and I'm not that way I'm just yeah so I think but even in primary schools and universities that's becoming more and more the trend I find um but the directness is still kind of a different topic like I think Feedback definitely has to be carefully delivered here. You can't just throw it on people like you would <laughs> in Holland. And the same with emails with colleagues or with supervisors. Um, it's much more careful, which honestly, I don't mind. Like, I kind of like that because it it's much more considerate of people's feelings and uh, often much more thought out before a message is sent or words are said. Yeah, I can see that. And if we look at feedback and if in with my clients, I look at the culture map, which is a framework where we map out cultural behaviors, really. And if we look at how we prefer to give feedback, the Dutch 
prefer that negative message stand on its own, are given face-to-face value. Um, and that means that we perceive or we tend to perceive people that have a different preference, for example, providing compliments together with negative feedback. We, or the Dutch, experience that as quite confusing because what is it that you want to say? You're giving me a compliment or you want me to improve something? And what then comes in mm-hmm. with the priority? Probably something yeah. that you recognize as well. Definitely. Yeah. And, and sorry, yeah, go, go on. ahead. <laughs> I was going to say it's, um, um, that's definitely true. Although I do think that, um, like, for example, when I first came here, I let my husband read all of my emails before I sent them because they were often way too direct. And he would say, oh, you, you haven't sent that yet, have you? And I'd be like, no, not yet. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> um, but you do get used to it. And like there's pros and cons to it, because sometimes I do feel like, well, what are you saying to me right now? Are you telling me I'm doing something wrong? Are you telling me I have to keep like sometimes it can get too convoluted um, where working with Dutch clients and we were chatting about that a little bit before we started recording, but can be really refreshing because you know exactly what they mean uh, and you don't have to guess. So it, it, I think it has pros and cons for sure. What would you say, uh, Coco, with your clients? Like, is the way that the Dutch give and receive feedback, is that unique in the world or? It's not unique in the world. For example, Israelis are even more comfortable with direct negative feedback. Um, so, no, it's not unique in the world. What is um, What really helps when you look at the Dutch communication style and then general communication and feedback is that both their general communication is relatively what I call low context, meaning... When we start a conversation and I am the sender of communication towards you, I am responsible of providing the context, meaning I assume that you are, you have zero clue what we're going to talk about. So that comes with a lot of repetitions, written summaries, um, concrete and very explicit communication. And because that is the Dutch general way of communicating especially in the workplace, the direct negative feedback doesn't really come as a surprise. Mm -hmm. It becomes much more challenging, especially when you operate internationally and across cultures, is when your general communication is more high context, so you speak more between the lines, and we assume that we already share a certain context, but you are very comfortable with direct negative feedback. Russia is an example of that. So in their general communication there, they could be perceived as a bit fluffy. You know, what is it? I'm I'm not sure that I'm getting the main message out of this conversation. Mm-hmm. But then when it's about negative feedback, they're extremely direct and they're very comfortable with giving direct negative feedback, which is why many other cultures perceive them as very confrontational or personal or like an attack, really. Mm -hmm. So the Dutch is unique in a way, or the Dutch are unique in a way that they are very aligned when it comes to all of the types of communication that they have. Also in emails, you know, we in the Netherlands start a professional email with, I hope this email finds you well, Mm -hmm. which as you know, 
in English is not very common. It's like, mm -hmm. how are you? And it's much, yeah. you know, how are you? I hope you're doing well. I, I hope you had a great weekend and so on and so on. There's no mm -hmm. wrong or right at all, but it does influence our cultural perception, how we yeah. perceive each other. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, um, the other thing that I find with Dutch clients, for example, is um, we're very honest. Like if something is not right or you're, you don't agree with something or you're disappointed in something or you have something negative to share, you share it. Um, and here you would most likely request a conversation before you would share anything like that. Like you wouldn't put it in an email. Um, but yeah, that's so interesting to hear. And, and I know, you know, a lot about this. So yeah, that, I mean, I, you could probably talk for hours about the differences and the commonalities and, and how that works. And I think then there's also our personality types and does, or does that not align with, you know, the culture that you're in and, and all that. So you know, our cultural background and how we are, let's say, culturally wired in our brain is something that we lock until the age of puberty. So if you grew up in one place, um, in, in the same place until your puberty, you could say that that is your cultural background. That tends not to really change, really. Your personality, however, is, of course, what makes you you. It's your character. It's you have inherited parts of that from, you know, your parents, but you also also develop because of traveling and everything. And then what I do with most of my customers is that I always start with um, mapping out their personal cultural profile to first see how much they deviate from their cultural background. And it's really interesting to see that, you know, very often it's more in line than what they expected. Because our culture really plays a part on, you know, how we perceive one another and what we think is good leadership, you know, how we refer to authority, which is why I think your work in Canada is so important because you, you're probably having a very refreshing, refreshing approach in, in when you're in front of the class or when you teach others. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with a teacher being an authority figure in the sense that, um, you know, they do have a lot of knowledge. They are usually older than the students that they teach, not always, but sometimes. Um, and that kind of thing. And I think there should be a certain type of respect. Uh, for example, with me, I'm very flexible and I give students lots of options, lots of creativity and that kind of thing. But, you know, some will try to, will take advantage is maybe a, a kind of a strong phrase, but they will say, oh, could I also hand it in a week later? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so I think, you know, you have to still draw those lines and set those boundaries. But within that, uh, you can provide a lot of flexibility. And the other interesting thing I find is because they're already getting so much freedom and, and all of that, um, those requests are way less um, overall because they, they already feel like they're so autonomous in how they can uh, complete this course 
that they're eager to do it. They're more excited to start their assignments. They're more excited to uh, show me what they've thought of, you know, and, and then I also encourage them to share it with their peers. And then you get these great conversations going. And so it's, it's really, really great to see that. Um, but yeah, I do think that there's still that professionalism that you have to maintain. Like you're not their friend. Um, you can be friendly and you can be, you know, informal, but at the same time, you still have to make sure that they meet the expectations that are set for a university student in that course. That's a great example. I think, uh, it, it must also feel super empowering to see your students, you know, performing within the framework that you're providing. And I think the example of being friendly, but not their friend says it all for me, really. And yeah. funny fact is that what we see in basically in the field of interculturalism is that the whole world, regardless of geographic location or cultural background, but the whole world is shifting a little bit more to an egalitarian approach also in education. And that started with the arrival of the internet. Because of yeah. course, back in the days, you know, the the older, the more senior doctor, teacher, he, had, he or she had all the knowledge. And yeah. there was no other alternative to cross check or fact check any knowledge. So what we see is that with digitalization, the whole world is slowly shifting towards a more egalitarian approach where the authority figure is someone that you show respect to, like you said, but is not per se the one and only with the knowledge. Exactly, exactly. And I think the other thing is that students sometimes come from a place where, well, I don't know anything, you know everything, and now I'm going to learn everything. When I always say, you know so much already, especially I work mostly with, with mature students, so they sometimes have a whole career behind them, and they're now diving into a new field uh, of teaching, or a lot of them are actually older than me. I'm 35, and so I work with students that are, you know, late 40s, early 50s, and I'm like, what do you mean you have no knowledge? You know so much. And so I encourage them to use what they've, even if they worked in a completely different field, um, you probably have encountered individuals with disabilities. You probably have encountered times yourself where you didn't feel like the work environment was inclusive. What made that you felt that way and these kinds of things. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to be mindful of that. Definitely. I, in general, I think everyone should be mindful also of how inclusive is your communication, especially if you're an entrepreneur or an organization, a company or a corporate multinational for whatever that's worth, you know, how, how inclusive are you in your communication? Yeah. And how, what would you recommend organizations that do want to become more inclusive? Yeah, I think, um, there's, of course, two fields, like this, there's a the translation field and then there's the education field. There are small things, though, that everyone can do um, to make sure that they're more inclusive. So, for example, um, if you use language in Dutch, it's very common to use he and she. Um, instead of using he and she, try to use a more uh, gender inclusive word so use person or human being or teacher or like 
not a he or she kind of um, word. Other things you can do is make sure that you don't use too many cultural references throughout uh, because they may completely uh, be missed by some uh, employees that are not part of that culture or haven't been for their whole lives. I've experienced that myself too, you know, references to TV shows, um, uh, previous prime ministers, whatever. And I was like, I don't know who that is, but everyone was laughing because it was funny and I had no idea what they were talking about. Like you want to prevent that to make sure you don't exclude people. Other things are, uh, and that's mostly educational as well, but is, um, you know, when you present certain materials, present them in a variety of ways, make sure they have subtitles, um, you know, these kinds of things. And when you work with technology, make sure that you explain it properly, because we tend to assume, we tend to assume a lot as human beings, I've learned. <laughs> um, don't assume, just explain. Um, whether that's in your communication as a company, whether that's um, for a learning management system in an educational institution, start at the very beginning. If people already know it, they'll just skip it. But then at least you've made sure that you've included everyone, because especially if when people are older and they take certain courses, um, they may not be familiar with the technology. You may have worked with it for years. For them, it may be the first time that they even open it. So um, those kinds of things you can do to, and, and the other thing, because people always say, well, that's so much more work, or they sometimes say that. And I'm like, well, you know what? It's a little bit more work in the beginning, but it's going to save you dozens of emails with questions. If you design, whether it's your marketing, your website, your messaging on social media, or a course, for example, inclusive rewrite from the start, it will save you a lot of time um, and questions and confusion and adaptations in the long run. So that's what I would always recommend. And there's often so many little things that you can do um, that don't cost any extra money, not a whole lot of extra time, but can make a huge difference. In my head, I immediately start reflecting like how inclusive my communication is. I have never subtitled anything or, um, yeah, I don't know if I use so gender neutral words. I Very valuable recommendations. And you're right. They're not per se very time consuming. Maybe in the beginning. No. But... Yeah, but if you, if you get used to it... Um it just becomes part of your standard practice. And, and nowadays, like with all the apps we have out there and stuff like that, they can do the work, most of the work for you. Um, so even like generating subtitles should not take a whole lot of time. They will automatically generate and then you can adjust them, but it shouldn't take too much time. So it's more just being mindful. And I always say, because sometimes people say, well, have to, do I have to now do whatever I've created all over again. And I'm like, you know, I always work with the principle of plus one. So what is one thing you can do today that will make your company or your course or your teaching more inclusive in the future? So that could be, let's say for you, you post a video today and you're like, you know what? I am going to dive into those subtitling apps and see what I can find. Or maybe you wrote a post where you feel like, oh, I've really come from the female perspective here. Perhaps I should update it to also ref to, to be more inclusive in the sense of um, could all gender, gender identities, you know, identify with this 
with this blog, for example. So there's always one thing you can do, whether it's going back or moving forward. Um, and, and that's all we can do. I mean, I don't expect everyone to now all of a sudden take all their videos down and re-record them all. And that's not the idea. But um, yeah, there's often lots of little things that you can do. I can see that. And you can really count on uh, me putting one action on my agenda for today. <laughs> for sure, Kimberly. For Yay! Sure. No, definitely. I think it's super valuable. And and um, also for me, it's an example. Like you, you cannot know what you don't know. I have zero knowledge about in this type of inclusive communication. And without you bringing that to my awareness, I would have never thought of it. So it's a well, perfect you know, example. That's You're definitely not the only one. The, the problem with that is um, we often don't think about it until we meet someone with a disability that comes to us for advice. And we're like, oh my goodness, I can't offer you anything because none of my videos are subtitled, for example. Or um, when it's it's often reactive that we become inclusive rather than proactive, which is really a missed opportunity oftentimes. I, I see a certain similarity within my work where many professional organizations, they're experiencing quite some pain or challenges caused by cultural differences, but they're not so aware of the fact that those are caused by that specific example. So, you know, high sick leave or employees dissatisfaction, and then they're investing millions into trainings and courses and for everyone to, you know, become a better leader, but they're not really tackling the initial costs. And uh, there is a bit of a similarity there. Absolutely. Yeah. That also has everything to do with inclusion. And I think cultural sensitivity and awareness is also a really big part of inclusion for sure. Yeah, I'm happy that you say that. I couldn't agree more, but uh, it's my mission to spread that to spread that uh, information with the world. But again, that's where people need you because like you said, they don't know what they don't know. So if they don't recognize that their processes or communication is designed from a place of culture, uh, of their culture, I mean it's really hard to step back and reflect on your own cultural beliefs and values and how you were raised uh, until it's pointed out to you. So it's often not an unwillingness to change. It's just an unawareness of, oh, I, I didn't even think about that. And so that's where you come in uh, and say, you know what, for this employee maybe, or for this group of employees, uh, this actually comes across this way because in their culture. And then, and I find that that can also lead to so many interesting conversations and so much I, I really believe that that can make the world a better place you know when we can have open conversations about that and 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 get to know each other's culture and like you said it's not right or wrong it's just different and how is it different and how can we all work together to make it an enjoyable environment or or a workable process for all of us beautiful hands down amen I agree. I definitely agree. And, you know, it's all about how we perceive each other and eliminate noise and frustration and, and for teams and, you know, individuals to feel like they belong and operate better together, yeah. better yeah. together. Exactly. Exactly. And if I think if everyone's open-minded, 
you can make, yeah, again, you can make the world a much better place. Yes, I hear you. I agree with you. If we talk to Kimberly in five years from now. Where would she be? Where would she be? <laughs> Do we know? But, well, I honestly think I would still be doing the same work. Like, and this is something I find interesting. I never really thought about this, but I've always been kind of searching, you know, like always wondering uh, what should I do? And, and what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And it's really nice to finally say, yeah, I, I do what I love and I want to keep doing this. Um, where you might actually find us is hopefully out in the countryside, more in the mountains here. We live in the city currently still, uh, but we're looking to move towards uh, the countryside fairly soon and maybe have a little farm with some animals and stuff. We are active in animal rescue as well. So we we value that and we, we are a foster home and we do all this kind of thing. And I'm hoping to do more of that once we have you know bigger property and and all of that and yeah so I think that's where you'll find me in five years and it's beautiful that you have designed your business and your career path in a way that you more or less can pick it all up and and take it with you whether if it's in the yeah. city in your 40 year old camper van or on that <laughs> farm on the countryside which by the way sounds really appealing to me yeah, it it I think it'll be great. And another thing we want to do is is really inspire people more to you know go back to basic and live more self sufficient and be aware of the environment and that kind of thing. So I'm hoping that we can do something with that as well. Um, and yeah, I mean maybe we can retire the 40 year old camper van and use it as one of our places for guests to stay or something but for now we'll just keep using it for road trips and but you're right it's great to be able to to take your work wherever you want to go and even in May and June I'm going to Holland and to Spain for almost a month uh, and I'm just able to bring my work with me so I to me that that really feels like like freedom and and I really enjoy that. Thank you, Kimberly, for for making the time for your sharing your story and your honesty and inspiration that you have provided to many. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It was great to be here. Thank you for letting me tell my story. Um, yeah, it's it, and you made me think about a lot of things. So thank you. <laughs> I would love to hear more about that, but we're going to yes. save that for another time. Where can people find you? Um, they can find me under my own name. So it's Kimberly with L-E-Y Van Tol. Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, that's where I'm probably most active. And I also have a podcast, which is called the Outside the Box podcast. Um, so far, most episodes are in Dutch, but they're going to be continuing in English uh, moving forward. So yeah, if you want to find me, that's where you can find me. I will make sure to link everything within the show notes. And um, I highly recommend following Kimberly on Instagram because that's where you see all of this fantastic Canadian lifestyle and from snow to sun and lakes and the camper van. And it's great <laughs> to follow you there. I highly recommend it. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. Thank you very much, Kimberly. And uh, we will keep in touch. Thank you. I hope to give you a warm welcome to new episodes. 
And if you have enjoyed listening to my podcast, you would help me a lot by leaving a review or hitting that five-star button on Spotify. This simply helps for my podcast to be found by others and to spread the awareness on cultural perception. But for now, I'm wishing you a great day, evening, night from wherever or whenever you're listening to this. Ciao!